On today's episode of No Truce Bard, I have Dr. Adam Ewing on. Dr. Ewing is the author of The Age of Garvey. And in this book, he covers much ground on UNIA, such as the impact of Garvey on black politics in and outside of the United States. We also get into the conversation about the importance of humanities, and more specifically, African-American studies in a world that is STEM-oriented. Make sure you listen, subscribe, and share. Thank you. Take care. Peace. Welcome to a brand new episode of No Truths Barred, the best up and coming podcast on the internet. And I'm your host, Toykawaku Timmons. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in once again. And if you've missed any of the previous 65 episodes, those episodes can be found on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And also, I'd like to thank everybody that's contributed a piece of constructive criticism, any sort of support, sharing, you know, any particular video clip providing, you know, comments on any of the content that I post. I deeply, deeply thank you. And also make sure you subscribe to the No Truths Bard YouTube channel. So to jump into today's podcast, I want to say this is a, a great honor. I have a, a powerful scholar on today. Um, I actually met this gentleman at the Marcus Garvey Symposium, Symposium about maybe about five or six years ago. And it was a powerful symposium. And honestly, you know, what we're going to talk about today related to Garvey you know, it's just kind of a synopsis and overview and things that, you know, he brought up in his book that I think people can really take a lot from. Because honestly, you could do probably a 10 hour class on Marcus Garvey when you're looking at all of the various things when it you're talking about his impact here in the U.S., in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Asia. There's so many different ways you can go. So let me jump into this and I'm going to allow the doctor to introduce himself. I have Dr. Adam Ewing on today. He received his PhD in history from Harvard University in 2011. Before joining the Department of African American Studies at VCU in 2014, he served as a Mellon Post Doctorate Fellow at John Hopkins University and also a Mellon Assistant Professor uh, at Vanderbilt University as well. He's also the writer of The Age of Garvey. Make sure you check this out if you have any interest in learning about Marcus Garvey, his movement and his impact, not just here in the United States, but globally. Please, please, please check this out. And so without further ado, I want to introduce Dr. Adam Ewing. Thank you for coming on today, sir. If there's anything you'd like to add about yourself or you know where you come from, um, please do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Um, you're, and you're absolutely right that it's it, it's going to be hard to talk about all of the facets of Garveyism in one conversation. It, it's it's sort of a life, lifetime's worth of work when you talk about the breadth and and the complexity of of the movement. Um, that, thank you for that very nice that very nice introduction. Um, I'm not sure what I'd add except I. Uh, I, I grew up in Canada. Um, I think that's that's sort of a, an important part of how I how I got here. Garveyism in Canada is is a is a topic that hasn't been 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 dealt with nearly enough. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it's great to be here. Yeah, uh, you know, and I felt like to that particular point because a lot of times my research from from Garvey is more so from the vantage point. I'm looking at 
Harlem. I'm looking at the chapters of the UNIA here in Virginia. And, and another thing is right. it's, it's getting talked about more, but I think Garvey's impact in the South, I don't think it's something that we talk about a lot. A lot of times we really focus on like the Northeast, maybe like the Caribbean. But from my research, I see that he had like a huge impact in the South as well. And so I want to jump right into it. Um, the age of Garvey, you know, I think this is, you know, going through this book, you know, to me is right up there with like Tony Martin's work, uh, Rupert Lewis. I mean, just a real powerful work on Garvey. And so I want to know essentially, you know, what inspired you um, to write and do the research for the age of Garvey? And the second question is, you know, there's a lot of great work out there, powerful names like the people I just mentioned. Um, what do you feel that this particular work added to the research field when it comes to Marcus Garvey? Wow. Yeah, so I, I got interested in Garveyism in graduate school. I was taking a seminar with my advisor, the great uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, who currently is the, the president of ASALA, the organization that Carter G. Woodson founded. Um, so I was taking a taking a course with her, and for the course, I had to write a research paper, and I, I wanted to look into Garveyism because I was looking for models of effective grassroots organizing, and particularly how national and international organizations are able to mobilize local political efforts and really engage people politically. And, and Garveyism is is a great, maybe you know, the best example of of that. So I wanted to study Garveyism, you know, um, my university also had a nearly complete uh, run of the Negro world, Garvey's paper. And so I could read through those, 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 um, those journals. And I was absolutely captivated doing so. Um, but the other, the other reason why I wanted to, to focus on Garveyism was that, you know, I, I had known the outlines of Garvey's story coming into the project. What was amazing for me to find out um, was how much Garvey and Garveyism are erased from the mainstream, predominantly white narrative of history and, and, and black history. And, and it was it was shocking for me to do, you know, and you know, I'm, as you said, I'm coming from from Harvard, I'm being sort of educated, or you could say, you know, inculcated into a view of history, even someone's focusing on, on African American history, um, inculcated into a view in which in which Garveyism really wasn't a part of that story or Garveyism was was a sideshow and I was you know and and as you say there were a lot of and continue to be a lot of people doing incredible work on Garveyism but the the you know sort of the, the master narrative kept Garvey out and I I you know the more I researched into Garveyism and the more important I saw Garveyism as being in this history the more that that really stuck out and I really wanted to to make a contribution to to, to changing that. Yeah, you know, and when you when you were speaking just now about Garvey and him being a race from mainstream history, it's funny because I look at and we can get into this later in the podcast, like for example, take someone like Malcolm X, who literally would not exist without Marcus Garvey, because his parents met when they were in the UNIA. Um and there's something yeah. that's not talked about as well as the influence of Marcus Garvey on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so it's funny to me that I had to really go to college and I had to step away from the public education system to really get that understanding of Garvey. If you could speculate, why do you feel that is um, in such a monumental figure, not just in U United States history, but just really globally? Why do you feel that his story and his history, and his impact really isn't talked about that much? Yeah, well, I think, I think there's a different answer depending on where you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But in, in the United States specifically, it's important to note that, that 
black people and and people doing research in black history have always been writing about Marcus Garvey. Yeah, that's that's the first thing. And you and you mentioned some really important names, right? Tony Martin's Race First is is a is a classic mm-hmm. that, that was written. My goodness, I, oh, almost fifty years ago now. Yeah. Um, Rupert Lewis was was you know organizing these incredible conferences in the nineteen eighties. Um, there's a couple of, of of people, and and you know I, I was influenced by a host of different scholars: Emory Tolbert, John Henry Clark, oh. um, Randall mm. Burkett, Barbara Baer, Ulick Taylor, and people doing amazing work. Um, Robert A. Hill, the the editor of the Marcus Garvey Papers, who um, pulled together an archive of, that that allows you know scholars like myself to do to do research on the global impact of Garveyism. And and I, I think is the most sort of insightful uh, living scholar of of, of Garveyism, um, and 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 you know probably the most insightful ever. Um, he was incredibly important. Um, Amy Jakes Garvey, you know Garvey, yes, Marcus Garvey's yeah. second wife, doesn't get considered in this in this tradition of writing and, and preserving the memory and being a historian of the Garvey movement. You know when she wrote Garvey and Garveyism mm-hmm. in 1963, she had to self-publish that book, and that book was derided by by white scholars. Um, there, there was a scholar that wrote the first biography of, of Garvey, um, David Cronin. Mm-hmm. And Amy Jakes Garvey opened up her archive to, to David Cronin. And, and he was they got all this incredible access to, to these to these files and then wrote an incredibly insulting and, and derogatory book about about Garvey and and, and Garveyism. Mm-hmm. Um, and he considered Amy Jakes Garvey's work to be just sort of, you know, like memoir writing rather than history writing. But if you look back at yeah. Garvey and Garveyism, this is an incredible history of, of the movement. And of course, Damon Jakes Garvey also was editing the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. Yeah. Um, so, so the first thing is there are people doing this work, but in the United States, you know, in, in the 1960s, um, the academy, the, the, you know, the predominantly white academy was very much shaped by integrationist politics. And for the first time in the 60s, the doors of these institutions were opened wide to to black scholars and to black students on the condition that a very narrow perspective of black history was was um, you know was 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 pursued and and these institutions were very much wedded to the narrative of integration of, of civil rights and were very threatened by Garveyism and connected to this black studies because black studies was coming in and 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 offering a perspective which which has been much more widely accepted now yeah. But which was really critical of, of sort of the efforts of, 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 you know, an integrationist politics that was viewed as, as inadequate. Um, Garvey was a hero for a lot of these these scholars. And there was there was a concerted effort in the late 1960s and early 1970s to suppress these perspectives. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this is also the black power era. And, and yeah. that's viewed as very threatening. So you have these these scholars that on the one hand are are. Start, these white scholars that are starting to bring black history into the mainstream story, but in these very this very narrow lens that excludes black nationalism, that excludes radical black power, that excludes Garvey, and I think that explains a lot of the, the erasure. And it's taken decades to get back to the point where where um, Garvey is taken more seriously in that community. Yeah. But of course, as you know, as I said originally, Garvey has always been incredibly taken very seriously by by people that just haven't been in that sort of elite white space. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And it's funny that, you know, you mentioned uh, John Henry Clark, you know, because uh, I have a few works of his and, and he goes really, he d- does great detail to talking about the UNIA. And then, you know, Garvey and Garveyism, 
that was one of the things that caught me when I read that book because it was an amazing book on the UNIA. And I, I kind of I kind of could feel that it wasn't treated with that degree of, of the same seriousness as like maybe like a Tony, a Tony Martin. And once again, Tony Martin's a brilliant, brilliant historian, you know, not taking nothing away. Uh, but yeah, you know, Garvey and Garveyism was was a huge uh, work. Um, but I want to kind of move on to the next thing because I know I don't have you for too long. Uh, so when you look at Garvey, you know, we think about the concept of Pan-Africanism. He did not he was not the originator of it. You know, you have people prior to him, you know, you have people like Martin Delaney, you had uh, uh, Henry Bishop, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, uh, you had Henry Sylvester Williams, amongst many others. And to a degree, yeah. you could look at W.E.B. Du Bois as being Pan-African as well, just kind of in a different capacity in juxtaposition of Garvey. And as we all know, that rivalry between, you know, Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois. But what I want to ask you... Yeah. We have this thought, we have this thought process, we have this idea for the need of repatriation, or if not full repatriation, connecting with Africa. What was the difference? Why do you feel like Garvey made more of an impact versus his predecessors? Because you had brilliant people before, you had people that did great works, you had uh, the other gentleman that went to uh, Liberia, and I can't remember his name at the moment, Edward Wilmot Blyden. Edward Blyden. Yeah. You have people like that, really brilliant people. But what do you think Garvey did that was different versus his predecessors when it comes to Pan-Africanism? Yeah, the, connect, the connection between Garvey and Garveyism and Pan-Africanism is is so important. But I think, you know, and, and you've, you've listed a number of really important predecessors to, to Garvey. I think you know, Pan-Africanism in general is is a concept that that is is often misunderstood, at least in in my view. And I think you know, in order to think, in order to understand sort of what Garvey did that was different, it's also really important to understand the shoulders that Garvey that, that Garvey stepped on. You know, that mm-hmm. or the, you know that, that that lifted Garvey and that made Garveyism Garveyism possible. You know, Pan Africanism comes out of this this tremendous historical transformation in in the Atlantic world. Right, which is which is Europeans colonizing and and clearing the land through genocide, in the Americas clear, and then and then bringing in you know huge numbers enslaved Africans forcibly over to the Americas in order to en- en- enrich themselves to produce material on the land, that land that, that created this incredible political and economic strength for 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 Europe, right? And 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 so you have this situation where before those events. The Atlantic world is, is in general a place where people are living with, with a similar quality of life in the Americas, in Africa, in Europe. And, and through those transformations, through that exploitation and through the rise of, of this sort of racial hierarchy, um, you have this incredible inequality produced. And also this, this, this world in which Europeans are absorbing American, right, indigenous and African people into this racial hierarchy Rob, you know, stripping them from their societies and bringing this, them, them, them into this, this, this world as subordinate and, and perpetual hewers of wood and drawers of water. And this is the context of Pan-Africanism, right? Because people that are, are stripped from their, their, their diverse communities in Africa in, find themselves in the new world, in, you know, in the Americas, in this situation where for the first time they're identifying as African, Rather than as as whatever you know where where they come from their their ethnic group, um, 
they're, they're, they're finding commonalities in terms of sort of shared or, or similar religious practices, similar cultural practices, similar, you know, similar social institutions. And, and so, as you say, like it is this, it is this politics of connection and trying to, to, you know, to, I, to both find connection in the past, but also to find connection through a, a shared history of struggle. But on the other hand, it is also a politics of refusal. Because what Pan-Africanists are saying is that this world that is being created by Europeans, in which there is this single center, right, with, with white people on top and black people on the bottom, in which black people are enslaved and white people are free, this is this this colonial relationship is is inadequate and it, and 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 it, and it must be refused and mm-hmm. black space black self determination must be created in order to emancipate black people from from the bondage of this system both during slavery and after slavery mm-hmm. and and this is the tradition the tradition of the Moran Bay rebellion in, in Jamaica the tradition mm-hmm. of the maroons yep. right this is the tradition that Garvey grows up with. And, and he's reading those texts, but he's also living this history, right? Garvey's father claimed Maroon heritage, uh, right? The Maroons are a group of people in Jamaica that fled from the plantations, um, right? Rejected the logic of this Europe, Euro-centered society and built these independent African-centered communities in the hills of Jamaica. Um, Garvey's father was also involved in the planning or in the lead up, the politics leading up to the Moran Bay Rebellion, this great rebellion that sought to overturn right, white rule in Jamaica in, mm-hmm. in 1865. Garvey's tutor, Robert Love, met Henry Sylvester Williams and, and is mm-hmm. this key Pan-African figure in Jamaica. Garvey like grows up in the, in the shop of Alfred Cat Burroughs, his godfather, which is this hub of Pan-African discourse. So Garvey grows up in this tradition. Um, and then, like many West Indians, right, Garvey travels around the world, and you know, in, in the in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, um, which is also really important to understanding the spread of Garveyism. Um, so Garvey is is immersed in this politics of both connection and refusal. Um, the thing that Garvey did that was that was different was really, you know, Garvey emerged in in World War in this World War One period where Europe has been torn apart. Um, and and Garvey, Garvey takes this, this prophetic tradition of Pan-Africanism, right, based on the Psalm 6831, princes shall come out of Egypt, Ethiopia shall, shall stretch her hands forth mm-hmm. unto God, and says, look, the time is now. The time to bring together the scattered sons and daughters of, of, of Ethiopia is, is right now. He says, um, black people have missed this opportunity with World War I. The world is in revolt. There's revolution in Russia. There's revolution in Asia. There's revolution in the Middle East. Workers all over the world are, are rising up. Garvey says, black people were not organized and prepared for this, for this moment. And it is absolutely essential for black people the world over to wake up to the need to organize and prepare because another conflict is coming. And if black people are not prepared, mm-hmm. um, they may lose the opportunity for liberation forever. And and this is this is what Garvey does to catalyze this, this tradition of trying to emancipate black people from this this European world system, and and to give it the urgency of the post World War One era. And of course, Garvey's Garvey is prophetic here, right? Because yeah. it is it, there is another conflict a generation later with World War Two, and black people are more mobilized in in in, lar- in in many respects, because of the work that Garveyism mm-hmm. has done, and and there is that then move toward liberation politics and and decolonization. Let me ask. Um, speaking of 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 Garvey, 
and you were talking about his influences. It's, it's great that you mentioned Dr. Robert Love because I was leg legitimately about to ask about that. Uh, but I also want to talk about a little bit about uh, Dr. Booker T. Washington, um, which is his work up from slavery really had a profound impact on Garvey. And as we know, W.E.B. Du Bois had his issues with Dr. Booker T. Washington. Well, I want to ask you, when we're looking at the, uh, the political agenda of Marcus Garvey and we see what he's trying to do, uh, for those that don't know or may not be aware of the fact that W.E. Du Bois was extremely critical of Marcus Garvey and his movement. Can you briefly talk about like what exactly was it that Du Bois was critical of when it came to Marcus Garvey? Yeah, I mean, they didn't like each other at all. And, <laughs> and, and you know, like they, they, they insulted each other. Um, du, du, Bois, du Bois, right, ultimately reached this this point where, where he was, was participating in the, the Garvey Must Go campaign, doing everything that he could yeah. to get Garvey arrested and deported. Um, and, and Garvey told, called the boys all kinds of all kinds of names as as well. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a complicated story, but it, I, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that that Du Bois saw Garvey as a usurper, that Du Bois felt that he was the rightful bearer of sort of pan-African politics. Um, he, he was, you know, Du Bois is, 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 was a very, you know, classically educated man and and felt that Garvey was was making appeals sort of you know appeals to the worst instincts of people he felt that Garveyism was irrational he was very critical of the black star line which he thought would 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 you know was 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 swindling people um he, he was he was I think very very threatened by Garvey's ability to to gather a mass mass audience around around him um and and so I think you know a lot of the a lot of the disagreement just came from the heat of of that competition. Du Bois was with the NAACP, and and after World War One, it looked like the NAACP might be a mass organization that really attracted a wide black black audience. And then Garvey came in, and his organization just swept everyone away. And and I, I think a lot of that was a lot of it was competition. Um, you know, later in later in Du Bois's life, he came, he he expressed sort of perspectives that were that were you know aligned with Garveyism in interesting ways. He explored the idea of, of of separatism. You know, I think I think a lot of and this is true of a lot of opponents of Garvey, people like George Padmore that, that said all kinds of nasty yeah. things about Garvey, or C.L.R. James, who later sort of came to 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 recognize what Garvey had actually accomplished. Um, so I, th I think that's I think that's a large part of it. And, and, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't uh, wasn't uh, A. Philip Randolph like a critic of Garvey as well? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. A. A. Philip Randolph was was a socialist and and really thought that that you know liberation must proceed along these the scientific lines. Mm -hmm. And Garvey Garvey just did things differently. And and you know so so that that was it, it was a similar a similar perspective to the boys. Yeah. Um, and and I, I mentioned this when I emailed you and, and this is something I've had conversations with. And I want, you know, you're a scholar in this. So I want you to clarify uh, the, the whole concept. And I think you kind of answered this earlier in your response, but just to kind of go into it a little bit more. Pan-Africanism, that what we what we title Pan-Africanism. I've had conversations with people that said that that sort of ideology was already starting to begin on the continent post-Berlin conference. 
and that it would have grown there without without the influence of, of figures from the diaspora. And I've always just kind of taken from my point of view and my research thus far is that this concept that we call Pan-Africanism very much started out in the diaspora. And so it's just a little point I just wanted to bring up in this particular podcast. Yeah, Pan-Africanism, in my view, starts starts in the diaspora. Okay. Um, and 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 it, you know, like I said, it it it's because you know, first of all, you have you know, for the first time, people identifying you know as African rather than as Yoruba or or you know Bakongo or or mm-hmm. and and you know one of one of the many different societies in 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 Africa itself. Um, but you know, also my. And, and, you know, the thing about Pan-Africanism is that everyone has a different definition. And I think what's what's going to be really important moving forward, and I, I want to try to do this in some of my work moving forward, is to really sort of clarify what Pan-Africanism is as, as a politics. But, you know, as I said, I, I think that it is really important to, to understand that Pan-Africanism emerges within the, the, the framework of European hegemony. It is sort of the creation of European power that provides the response of pan of pan Africanism, which is, in my view, a a project of of, of overturning, and is, it is an anti-colonial project that is it is dedicated to overturning world white supremacy and and restoring conditions of of equality between between you know um, Africans and, and and Europeans, which is very much what what Garvey was was seeking. And the simple fact of the matter is that. Pan-Africanism developed later in Africa because Africa was not colonized. You know, people, people until right the, the late 19th century, early 20th mm-hmm. century, in most parts of of the continent. Um, and so it was among people that were forcibly brought to the Americas that developed a liberation politics to overturn these white, you know, this, 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 these white dominated societies that that were the progenitors of Pan-Africanism. Later, when Africa was colonized, Africans. Um, you know, did did remarkable work to, to innovate and to develop the, the tradition of Pan-Africanism. So what, the distinction that I would make is I'd say, look, there was really important resistance to European encroachments in, in Africa, um, at, you know, before and during the time that Pan-Africanism was being developed in the Americas. But I wouldn't call those, those, those forms of, of resistance Pan-Africanism. Yeah, I, I agree, because even if, you know, one of the examples I've heard used is like when you look at the uh, the Mahdi in Sudan that raised up against the British, uh, or you look at someone like Samori Torre, you know, and uh, I think in Guinea-Bissau that led this big revolution against the French. Those movements, they were rebellion, but I don't think it was based upon the line of identifying as African to fight to fight against these colonial powers. So I, I definitely see that point. Um, to move along, I want to talk a little... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I apologize. Oh, I... I'm sorry. I was just going to say, but when but when you get to people like Kwame Nkrumah and Frantz Fanon and Amalcar oh, Cabral, yeah. and and but when you get to that period, right, Africans are taking up the mantle of of Pan African liberation politics. Yes, uh, very much. And I want to touch on that later on. And so um, I want to read a, a quote from uh, a quote from your book, which I found was very powerful. And I and I have a question about this. Stated, uh, research has made clear that the UNIA was not the mere province of the urban American North as it was once portrayed, but a global movement that established local divisions across the United States, Canada through the Caribbean archipelago, 
and into the Central American Isthmus. My question is, and I stated this a little bit earlier, um, could you explain a little bit more about Garvey's impact in the American South? Because uh, it's something that I feel is talked about, but I think a lot of times the focus really isn't placed there. And I think from uh, one of Tony Martin's works, I believe it was either Hampton or Newport News that had over 48 chapters of the UNIA. I think one of the second largest chapters, uh, you know, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee had many chapters of the UNIA. Um, so if you could talk like maybe about that uh, rural impact that Garvey had in the South. Absolutely. And you're right. One of one of the major centers of Garvey's in the United States was in the, the Hampton, you know, the Hampton Roads area, the, the, the 757, that, that, you know, there rural Louisiana and, and New Orleans, Garvey was in, Garveyism was incredibly important. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing is, wherever there were black people in the 1920s, Garveyism was important. That, that's the remarkable thing about the movement. Um, the Garveyism was very popular in the South. I, I think it, in, in part because, in, in, in my view, um, the in the 1920s in the South, um, Political organizing was was very was was very fraught. Um, you know, the NAACP after this, you know, as I said, this brief recruiting drive after World War One is sort of driven away by the Klan and by by a resurgent a resurgent white supremacy. Um, and Garveyism in in you know Garveyites as they as they move into the United States in, into the American South are, are are presenting to people organizing in these rural communities a politics which is. Which is practical because it is not immediately striking at the, the, the foundations of white power in the United States, um, but also incredibly compelling because the argument that that Garveyites the Garveyites are making is is compelling everywhere. Which is that look the, the the focus is to build strength. We need to do this however we can. Um, right, Garveyism really empowered local communities and, and said, look, you, are, you know the conditions here better than anywhere else. Our goal is African liberation, which will lead to black liberation. Um, how do you go about that here? And empowered local communities. And it focused on institution building mm -hmm. and consciousness raising. And again, on this, this, this idea, which was incredibly powerful in the, in the, the South and, and elsewhere, which was that black people, Garveyites all over the world, and anti-colonial activists all over the world were organizing. They were gathering strength. Um, that, that white supremacy was, was in its dying days so long as people mobilized and spread the word and, and shared knowledge. And, and so it, it was an incredibly compelling message. It empowered um, Black people in the South, in urban and rural communities, to sort of build on the knowledge that they already had about what was politically possible and 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 it focused on institution building. Um and, and it, it it presented this incredible narrative of of liberation that was incredibly empowering. It was also strategic. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, Garvey Garvey is all, was 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 criticized for the intelligentsia for meeting with with the Klan. Um yeah. right he met with the acting imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in nineteen twenty two and Garvey's critics in the North said, well this is this is crazy. Why are you why are you talking to why are you talking to, to the Klan? Well, Garveyites had were, were having conversations all the time about how to best navigate around the the, the challenges of, of of white violence. Mm -hmm. um, and and Garvey's perspective was, you know, um, we have to be mindful 
of this of this power. We have to speak to this power. We have to recognize that 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 for people living in the rural South, the Klan is the United States. The Klan is, you know, Garvey said, the invisible government of of the United States. And we need to start from those from those premises and not 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 hide behind um, uh, you know any any sort of vision of what they of, of what the you know any rosy vision of what the United States might be. Yeah, um, and that was something he received huge criticism for, especially uh, people like we listed earlier, like Dubois and others, which is like really critical of him meeting with the Ku Klux Klan. But in his own capacity, it, it was very forward thinking. Um, I want to speak a little bit about the uh, the Negro world, the paper of the UNIA. Uh, but actually, before I get to that, you mentioned uh, Amy Jacks Garvey. But one of the things I found profound about the UNIA was the powerful positions held by women. And, you know, you look at parts of the UNIA, like the Black Cross nurses and what they were about, and what they did. Uh, you know, I think um, Maggie Walker supported the UNIA. Um, so it was a, a that was something that I found unique for its time to have a lot of women in powerful positions uh, that directed and created and contributed to the overall organizing of, U of the UNIA. Is that something you could, you know, speak to briefly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the UNIA provided a, a remarkable number of opportunities for, for female-centered leadership within the organization. I mean, a lot of the, the, the official rhetoric of the organization was was patriarchal and and sort of conceptual, you know, conceived of liberation yeah. in in male-centered terms. A lot of the men that were in the organization were misogynistic, as as you know, many you know were then and many are many are now. But the, the, the remarkable thing about the UNIA was that it provided a forum and it provided a platform, and and black women stepped in and they made claims. They said, you know, this is our organization. They expanded the the, the rhetoric and the philosophy of 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 Garveyism. They emerged as as central leaders. Mm -hmm. Amy Jakes Garvey, uh, Madame Demina, um, Henrietta Vinton Davis, yep. but local leaders across the country as well. And and not only not only women stepping into leadership roles and, and you know, not only across the country, mm -hmm. but across the world in Central America and the West Indies, not only women, but also also working class black men and women. Yeah. But Garveyism provided leadership and opportunities and a space for political activism of, of people from all different classes. It provided this space for for for, for women activists. It provided a, a community. You know, again, this, this the politics of refusal in Pan-Africanism is, is a politics of creating separate and liberated space for Black consciousness raising and organization building. And the UNIA provided this space, this liberated territory. And within this territory, all Black people, and, and the, UNIA, the UNIA brought in everyone, you know, mm -hmm. from preachers and lawyers to, to, to laborers, men and women, everyone came into the UNIA. And within this liberated space, they began negotiating new forms of relations. And women were at the forefront of saying, look, any vision of liberation that Garveyism is promoting must have women at the center of it. And, and women in the Garvey movement were pioneers in articulating sort of early, um, you know, sort of early varieties of what became black feminism. And you, and, and you spoke about the fact that the UNIA and the Garvey movement, it appealed to many of the masses of the working class, which when I look at early Dubois and his concept of the talented 10th is just like a stark mm -hmm. contrast. And, and to me, one of my opinions, I feel like Dubois in a way was really uh, uh, kind of aloof from the commoner. 
you know, his perspective, his modality on specific things, it may not have appealed to the masses of people. Uh, but I, I want to jump into the, the, the Negro world, that particular paper. Uh, one of the things I wanted to get into was the intellectual impact of Garveyism. So I know with the Negro world, you have people like uh, uh, Joel Augustus Rogers, who contributed pieces um, earlier on, Hubert Harrison, uh, he con he contributed pieces. Mm -hmm. I think he was the editor uh, for the Negro World at one point. For a time, yeah. Uh, and then you had uh, Carter G. Woodson, a few other people that contributed uh, to the Negro World. And so I want to ask you, we talk about you know, politics and we talk about a lot of different other facets of the UNIA and the Garvey movement. Uh, what was the impact on of that particular paper when it comes to introducing black intelligentsia, um, it, it's, it's work as a piece of, you know, because there were, uh, historical pieces written in the UNIA, I mean, uh, in the Negro world as well. And so what was the intellectual impact of that paper? Yeah. And, you know, I, let me, let me just go back and say, I, I think you're right about the boys. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's actually part of the answer for, for the impact of the Negro world. I mean, the boys, Du Bois started with the talented 10th, and, and later on, he really, you know, he embraced the idea of, of sort of working class and, and, and you know, he, he, he ended a Pan-African communist, right? So he really mm -hmm. sort of changed his view on sort of the elite. But you're right, he was always, he was always an, an elitist and sort of, and, and, and held aloof. And, you know, one of the innovations, the intellectual innovations of, of, of Garveyism was to produce a, a, a Pan-Africanism that, that was that did not disdain or look down upon the people that that really you know, started from and worked within and, and spoke within the languages of, of, of black people across the board, not just, not just elite people. Um, there's, there's a scholar, uh, you know, that wrote this essay on Garvey once Lawrence Levine, who said that, you know, the thing about Garvey was that he preached in the right syllables. You know, it wasn't. If you if you read Du Bois, you can see some of the the, the same arguments that Garvey is making. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's there's overlap, but but Garvey was was speaking in a way that people people heard, and he was speaking in a way that communicated with people and felt that they were not being looked down on, which which a lot of you know the, the intelligentsia was, was was doing in their in their language and and doing so in in making fun of Garvey's followers, calling them ignorant dupes and calling them unlettered and calling them ignorant and backward. Garvey was not disdaining people. Garvey was was saying, you know, our intellectual tradition is something that is inclusive of of of, of, of all of us, um, and and that I think in many ways that that is part of the intellectual legacy of, of the Negro world. So on yeah. the one hand, you're right. Like Garvey, Garvey gives a platform to all of these different people. Hubert Hubert Harrison, um, brilliant brilliant man, like mm -hmm. the Black Socrates. Black um, Socrates, yeah. <laughs> uh, William, William William Ferris. Um, uh, uh, Duse Muhammad Ali is editing the, the paper for, for a while, another really important figure. Yeah. Um, Joel, Joel Rogers, as you're saying, Eric Walron. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also providing a space for, for this, this, you know, this popular Black Pan-African consciousness that, that goes out on the pages of the Negro world every week and travels, right, is, 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 is taken by, by Black sailors and, and hidden on ships and traveled all over the world and, and spreads this, 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 um, narrative of an empowered blackness where right? the, the, the Negro world just, just bleeds black pride. Black people are strong. Black people are powerful. Black people, once, once they awaken to, 
the the, um, the the conditions of their bondage and organized. There is nothing that cannot be accomplished, and and liberation is just a matter of doing that that work. That message travels all over the world, and 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 influences countless numbers of people. Uh, really quick, because you mentioned Duse Muhammad Ali, and he's a figure that I, I've started to study a little bit more over the past few years. Um, and this is something that I guess maybe this is a question for me personally, as opposed to the listeners. When you look at Duse Muhammad Ali, could you say, because I've been conflicted on this, can you say that he was an influence on, on Garvey or more so of a contemporary? Because I think he's only he was only like 11 years older than Garvey, I believe. Uh, and I know he, I think he was he was born in Egypt. I think he, w- he was based in, I think he met Garvey in, in, in London, I believe. And then later on, he yeah. would go to Nigeria to start a paper in Nigeria. So could you call Duse Muhammad Ali an a influence on Garvey or just more so a contemporary? Well, I, I would say influence and contemporary okay. because, because once the ONIA is, is the biggest thing in town, Duse Muhammad Ali comes to the United States and is editing the paper for mm-hmm. a brief time. But yeah, when, when Garvey went to London um, in, you know, in, in, in the 1910s, he, um, he worked at... Uh, Duzi Muhammad Ali's incredibly influential paper, the Africa Times and Orient Review, which in many ways was a precursor to the Negro world. Duzi Muhammad Ali was a businessman and an incredible propagandist. And 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 his, if you read the African Times and Orient Review, similarly to the Negro world, it, it has reporters all over the world. It is reporting news from from Asia and Africa and the Americas. And, and bringing it together into a shared narrative, which is connecting the struggles of black people and, and non-white people all over the world. Um, Garvey learned, I, I think, a tremendous amount from, from that newspaper and wrote a famous essay in that newspaper. So I think I think the influence of Duse Muhammad Ali is really felt there. Of course, Duse Muhammad Ali was also an entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. I don't know that this is the case, but I can't. I, I imagine that Garvey also was was inspired by that, and and Garvey, of course, created the Black Star Line and all of these these business adventure adventures, which were very much in line with the way that Duse Muhammad Ali approached Pan Africanism. Uh, the the other thing, briefly, I I want to kind of briefly cover is uh, when you talk about the Garvey Must Go campaign. You know, you look at that, but then mm-hmm. on another degree, uh, you had people like J. Edgar Hoover, you know, that wanted him gone from the country. And uh, I believe that was like one of the first big cases of the Bureau of Investigation was investigating the UNIA um, and and Marcus Garvey. Uh, To those that don't know, could you speak to to the, uh, I guess, like the the war, you know, that J. Edgar Hoover set on Marcus Garvey? Yeah, so Garvey was Hoover's big break. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was assigned the task, the Bureau of Investigations, which became the FBI, was assigned the task of getting, getting Garvey. By, by 1919, um, the, the, the U.S. Intelligence, Committee, uh, intelligence Community viewed Garvey as sort of the greatest threat to, um, to you know, the, the, the security of, 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 of you know, U.S. relations, white supremacy. Um, and, and um, you know, sent out numerous informants in, into the organization, um, launched you know, a years-long effort to figure out a way to incarcerate and, and, and deport Garvey. Right at the very beginning of, the, of, of the, the effort to do this, someone floats the idea that maybe we can get Garvey for mail fraud. 
which is exactly what they end up doing on very, very tenuous grounds. Um, but they, you know, it's, it's funny, they had a lot of trouble because Garvey was very, Garvey was very cautious and very careful and sort of knew how to step up to the line without getting, with, without speaking in a way that could be construed as seditious in a legal sense, in a, in a manner that would allow him, you know, as a non-U.S. national to, to be deported. But yes, this is, this is how J. Edgar Hoover got started in the FBI. And, and to the, uh, back to the Negro world, that particular paper, there were a lot of parts of Africa where that paper was illegal, you know, it was banned, and yet people yeah. um, would still smuggle it in. Uh, could you speak to, like, what were some of the consequences at that time if you, you know, if you were in Francophone Africa um, and you were caught with a Negro world? You know, what, what was the repercussions for somebody at that point? Yeah, well, in, 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 in French West Africa, the, being caught with a, a Negro, Negro world was potentially punishable by death. Um, wow. it, other, other people, you know, uh, other people were incarcerated for, for, you know, being, being caught smuggling the Negro world in, um, you know, like in the Caribbean, the Negro world was banned throughout most of, of Africa and these stiff penalties were, were, were put upon it, but this didn't stop the flow of the Negro world into, into the continent. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the Garvey organizers, people that were, were spreading the news just got more more creative they would they would hide the, the the paper inside other papers black people were on you know traveling on sh working on ships all over the world and they 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 provide this distribution network people had all these you know underground networks to to, to spread the news there's there's a famous story that, that jomo kenyatta who became the first you know mm -hmm. the president of kenya yeah. told clr james um he said you know when in, in the early 1920s um, copies of the Negro world, world would be smuggled into the ports of Kenya, and representatives from all around the country would be sent in, you know, into Mombasa, into into the port. And the first page of the Negro world, world, which was always Garvey's editorial, would be read a few times, and people would listen to it and they would memorize it, so they wouldn't be carrying the paper. And then they'd spread off back through the country to spread the word and to, to relay the message that had been sent by by Garvey. This was happening all over all over africa in in different forms wow uh that, wow that's legendary <laughs> to say the least uh so what i want to talk about something that you point out in your book um and i think it's another part and i want to get into garvey briefly on a global level uh because you know as you know and, and many others know people like ho chi Minh would come to UNIA meetings, but you also pointed out something interesting, and honestly, it was my first time ever coming across this, uh, was about West Coast chapters of the UNIA and how uh, Japanese speakers, Indian speakers would be coming in and they can actually speak at, at, at various uh, UNIA chapters. Um, can you speak to the impact of Garveyism when it comes to uh, politics um, that we may in places we may not really suspect because, like I said, when I read that, I was like, "Wow!" Uh, you had people that, like I said, different groups like the Indians, Chinese, uh, excuse me, Japanese people that were coming to these UNIA chapters. Yeah. Uh, what what is kind of like misunderstood in that particular uh, aspect? Because I don't really hear about it a lot. Um, you know, we hear about his his influence in Africa, but what was like that influence in Asia as well? Yeah, well, you know, Gar Garvey's view of of global politics was was that black people needed to organize, 
but also that that colonial people all over the world were were mobilizing. Um, you know, and, and and he was influenced by by Hubert Harrison again in this, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, this this white supremacist Lothrop Stoddard wrote this book called The Rising Tide of Color, right after World War One, and and Lothrop Stoddard was 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 aghast at this idea that that white world supremacy would fall because you know he, he was looking around, it's like well, all these you know people in Asia and people in Africa and you know black people in the United States are are are, are mobilizing and, and you know white people better get get together or else this is going to be a problem and. Hubert Harrison wrote Stoddard this congratulatory letter, being like, "Oh, I'm glad you see this. You know, you all are in trouble. Like, we're we're coming for you." Yeah. And you know, very Garvey Garveyism very much projected this. The Negro world reported not only liberation struggles in the Black world, but in in Asia as well. Garveyites, as you say, on the West Coast, but but also Garvey himself um, was constantly trying to make contact with liberation movements in other parts of the world. Garvey, you know, communicated with people like Gandhi. Um, you know, was 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 in in constant touch with with other groups of people because the the UNIA identified the, the struggle as a struggle of of you know black people organizing, but also non-white people in general getting together and and throwing off the shackles of, of world white supremacy, and and this led to really interesting collaborations, uh, mm-hmm. including the ones you're talking about with with India nationalists and. And, and and Japanese nationalists and Chinese nationalists and 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 people that are that are aligning against um, the you know the colonial world and trying to find a, a, a path to gain strength in the pursuit of anti-colonialism. Uh, so um, moving along, when we look at Garvey posthumously, you know I've seen some of the impacts. You know when you look at organizations like the Morris Science Temple, many of the yeah. first adherents to that organization, including uh, Timothy Drew, who would become Noble Drew Ali, you know, was a Garveyite. Uh, Elijah Elijah yeah. Poole, who would become Elijah Muhammad, uh, was a Garveyite. Yeah. Um, and like I said earlier in the podcast, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King really spoke highly about Garvey's influence on him. Same thing with Malcolm X. So I want to talk about on two parts. The first part of this is what is the impact of Garvey in black nationalist movements after him in the United States? Uh, whether it may be in the manifestation of SNCC or other organizations. Um, and then I like to talk about his influence on black, on African leaders, you know, after uh, World War One as well. So the first part is in the United States. Yeah, I mean, the, Garvey, Garvey had a tremendous influence in, and, and in, in, in the ways that you that you suggest, right? The, the, uh, the Moore Science Temple views Garvey as a, a prophet sort of foretelling the coming of noble Drouale, uh, Ali. Um, you know, Malcolm X, who you, who you mentioned before, grows up in a Garveyite household. Elijah Muhammad was a, is a, is a former Garveyite. Um, you know, Garveyism had a, a, a tremendous impact in general in, in shaping the Black Power movement. Mm. Um, I, I, the, the way I think about Garvey, you know, Gar, Garvey's message says something that is incredibly powerful and, impre- and incredibly important. And it, it is that you know, it's sort of contained in this idea that you have to emancipate yourself from mental slavery. But Garvey's politics starts from the perspective that liberation for black people requires recognizing that there is no path to power, there is no path to equality, without first recognizing that this is impossible within the United States as it currently stands. It is only possible by realizing that and then figuring out a way to mobilize black power, um, mobilize collective power, 
in a way in which black people can then return to the bargaining table with with that power as you know in, in a way in which in which true relations of equality can be can be can be um, can be achieved uh, and, and that you know that that message of, of we need to recognize that what the United States is saying about including black people in the project um, what integrationists are saying about allowing black people sort of into the American dream like all these things these are lies and so long as you you know as long as black people believe that there is a place for black people in America as it is currently constituted black people remain in mental slavery and 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 Oh, I, I think you just got muted. I think you did you unmute yourself. Hello. Speak. Can you can you hear me? Hold on. Wait a minute. Can you hear me? Okay. Hold on. Technical difficulties. Hello. Hello. All right, speak. What's going on? Hold on. Uh, hello? Yeah, okay, we're back. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, hello? I hello. can't hear you. You can't hear me? Okay, hold on. Hello? Can you hear me now? What about now? Hello? No. What is going on? Okay, hold on. Let me... Okay. All right, you should be able to hear me now. Still can't hear me? Um Okay, let's see here. What about now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Still no? Still no? Okay. What just can happened? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh hold on. Okay. La, 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 la. All right. Can you hear me? Still can't? Uh, oh, oh, oh. This sucks. All right. Hold on. Let me see. Um, uh, why am I not being heard? Hold on. Okay. Can you hear me now? Still can't. Okay, hold on. Let's see here. Let me go to more. No. Okay. Um, uh, still can't hear me. Okay. Okay. Um. Hmm. This is weird. I'm unmuted. Please don't hear me. I, I can't hear you. Yeah, I can hear you. This is what I'm gonna do. Um, hold on. Can you see the? Okay, so hold on. 
Okay, so I'm going to just type them and, you know, <laughs> so this is, uh, sorry for the technical difficulties, everyone. So you'll still be able to hear Dr. Ewing. I'm going to type him the questions and then he'll be able to speak. And I'll, as I'm typing them, I'm going to go ahead and state them as well. So, uh, hold on. Let me put this here. Um. So I know that Kwame Nkrumah, I know that Kwame Nkrumah is a figure that was influenced by Garvey, but what other African leaders were influenced by Garvey as well? Yeah, so a, a number of African leaders were, were influenced by, by Garvey. Um, you know, Garvey's organization lasted long after Garvey's death. I mean, of course, Garvey's organization is still, is, is still active. Um, in 1957, the president general, Garvey died in 1940. In 57, William Sherrill, who was then the president general, traveled to Ghana to, to be part of the independence celebration, along with people like Martin Luther King and several other, other people. And um, as you say, Nkrumah was, was, was greatly influenced by Garvey. At that, at that gathering, he told William Sherrill that of all the books that he'd read as a young man, the book that had the greatest influence on him was The Philosophy and Opinion to Marcus Garvey. But Sherrill was... Was, was amazed to be approached by all of these different African leaders at the Independence Celebration who, who talked about the influence that, that Garveyism had had on them. And other you know, famous West African politicians like Nambi Azikwe also said similar mm -hmm. things about the influence of, of Garveyism. He became one of the early leaders of, of Nigeria. Um, you know, another, another amazing story in 1967, um, Garveyites actually established a... Um, you know, they, they established operations in Liberia. And the head of those operations, Clarence Harding, was invited by the Organization of African um, Unity to, to, to speak with uh, a delegation in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Mm. And so Harding left Liberia and he traveled to, to the Congo, um, you know, a, a, a place that, that, that Garveyism had played a really important role in influencing the emergence of, of the Kambanguist church. Um, which, which, which became a really important institution in, in the anti-colonial struggle in, in the Congo. Then he went to Kenya and he spoke with, with Jomo Kenyatta, who was, was a Garveyite as a young man and, was, and, and, and who really became one of the vectors for spreading Garveyite, Garveyite activism in Kenya. Um, then he, then you know, he traveled to, to Addis Ababa and, and the UNIA was given you know, a non-voting role in the OA, OAU, um, right? right um, and, and, you know, Harding was, was, was both, you know, thrilled by this, but also frustrated that it had become at a time when the UNAA wasn't powerful enough to really have the impact that it would have had, it would have had otherwise. Um, but you can see the influence of, of the UNAA in Africa today in, in the flags, right? The, yeah. the, the, the flag of Malawi, which has the, the, the red, black, and green in, in the black star on, on, on Ghana's, mm -hmm. um, on Ghana's flag. Um, when I was when I was doing research in Kenya, I I, I stayed in an apartment that was near Marcus Garvey Road. Um, sort of the, the the landscape itself reflects the influence of of this movement. But you know, one of the things that I really emphasize in my book is that 
Garveyism was all over Sub-Saharan Africa in the 1920s and 1930s. And the, the nationalist sort of liberation generation that emerged after World War II contained people that had grown up in and been part of and had, had their political education forged by the Garvey movement. So uh, I want to do like a quick takeaway on Garvey. And, you know, uh, my, my question to you would be, and I'm going to have to type this because, folks, if you're listening to this, uh, Dr. Ewing can't hear me, so I'm going to have to type my questions. Um, what would you say, of all of your years of researching Garvey, um, what what's your most profound takeaway about Marcus Garvey and the impact of the UNIA? Like, if, if, if someone had to ask you, you know, just in general, why is it important to study Marcus Garvey? Uh, what information or what insight would you provide them? So I'm going to go ahead and type this in. So the question I asked, I said, if you, in your opinion, if one is interested in looking at key figures in liberation movements, why is it important to study Garvey? I think I think Garvey is is important for for two reasons. Um, you know, the, the first is that Garvey's message resonated through the world, and Garvey's message resonated through the decades. Um, you know, liberation is about is about inspiring people to overcome the barriers that are put in place by those that seek to impress them. And, and to gain sort of the, 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 the momentum and the courage to push through those those barriers. And again and again, across, again, across the world and across the decades, Garvey's message inspired people to, um, to act and to mobilize and to fight for liberation. And it is incredibly important then to understand why that was the case. Um, the second is, is that Garvey was dedicated more than anything else to organizing people to do just that, to bring about their their liberation. And Garvey was, if, if nothing else, a genius at that, at, at mobilizing people, at inspiring them. Um, I think any, any path toward liberation involves that type of, of um, that talent of, of inspiring people and, 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 and that real commitment to organizing work. And I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from the Garvey movement. Um, so again, both the message that Garvey projected, but also Garvey's commitment to building a powerful movement. Wow. And Dr. Ewing, um, I want to thank you, although he can't hear me, but I want to thank you for talking about uh, Garvey and, and your work. And I want, want anybody out here that's listening to this particular episode, make sure you go and get The Age of Garvey. Um, powerful, powerful book. So I want to briefly switch the, the subject to STEM fields and the humanities. And so I'm going to send this question to Dr. Ewing and he's going to answer. And I'm, I'm rather verbose. So hold on. Bear with me, people. Well, look, <laughs> history is power. Um, you know, it, 
one of my one of my one of my my, my favorite writers, uh, Guliwa Tiango, the, the Afrocentrist uh, Pan African writer from from Kenya, talks about the artist and the politician, and and he says, you know, the politician, those with power, are interested in maintaining order, by, by which he means the status quo at all costs. The artist is interested in opening up the status quo to new possibilities, to new futures, right? And our status quo is one that is it is unequal. It is, it is structured by, by, by racial inequality, and it is the interest of those with power to not allow us to see the possibility of something different. Yeah. History, like art, opens up the possibility of something different. It shows us how our society come, came to be, in other, which, which means that it is not something that is inevitable, but something that is conditional on specific moments, specific power struggles. Um, it also opens us up to the, to the reality and the realization that other societies were living in different ways, organizing in different ways. It allows us to see different ideas about human society in the past as a way of building new societies in the future. African-American studies is absolutely critical to this pursuit because it centers the Black experience. One of the major ideological propaganda efforts of the West, of the United States, is to deny the value of Black history, to deny that there is a Black history or a Black civilization separate from or of value to Western society. Um, and, and by centering the Black experience, as African American studies does, we better understand what our society is, but we also understand much better sort of what paths to liberation would look like. Because if you study people that have been immersed in this tradition, if you study the Black liberation tradition, you see all of these beautiful visions of what a better society would look like. And it is so important for students to understand that, that the present is not inevitable, that there is this long tradition of, of struggle um, and so it is incredibly important, I think, for, for you know, for, for the ongoing effort to, um, to, to, to liberate black people, to liberate oppressed people around the world, to, to focus on these things. And, you know, by the way, there's no reason why you can't study STEM and study African-American studies as well. A lot of our majors at BCU are double majors and they study science and they study African-American studies. Because in every field that we learn, it is important to understand how that field looks when Black people are centered and Black experiences are centered. Because the status quo is for those voices to be marginalized and, and denigrated. And so it doesn't have to be either or, but it is, it is so important for, for, for us to continue these, these traditions and to learn our history. Yeah, and, and that's one of my concerns when we when we have this push for constant commerce and kind of the, to acquiesce to this whole ideal of capitalism, if you will. Can you hear me again? Guess not. Okay. <laughs> but uh, we, we cannot let this, this zeal or this fervor to always pursue money uh, silence our story or make us remove ourselves from studying our history. And so I'm going to send this next question to Dr. Ewing as well. Um, and the question is, and also the previous question was about STEM, because a lot of people are encouraging young people to go into STEM fields as opposed to the humanities, which African-American studies, history will fall under the humanities. So the next question, I'm going to say this out and then I'm going to send it to Dr. Ewing, is what advice would you have for a student interested in pursuing a career in African-American studies? 
Oh, <laughs> I would say you should. I would say you should do it. Um, I mean, I mean, African American studies gives students um, skills that are are incredibly useful across a number of different professions. Um, it, it provides students with a, a perspective about that, that really illuminates the, the, the society that that we that we live in. Um, it, it fosters critical thinking skills that are incredibly important and, and I think are only going to become more important as we move more and more into a data-driven society in which it is incredibly important to understand what information is usable, what information is useful, what information is true, what information is, is, is presented in good faith, and what information is, is not presented in good faith, what information is 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 meant to deceive um and so it it, it's it's incredibly important to have these skills um but i think african-american studies both both sets students up for a um for a number of 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 really important sort of pursuits after they they get through school but also i think arms students for being active and engaged citizens indeed indeed and and i definitely agree i think a lot of times we we don't ignore the rigor that goes into uh, synthesizing all of this various types of information, formulating different arguments, and just the acumen that's needed for proper historiography. I don't think we understand uh, what really goes into producing a great work or a work such as The Age of Garvey. So the last question I'm going to send Dr. Ewing is uh, what sort of, ask him about what sort of projects or research he's currently working on. Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and send this right now. Hold on. So I'm I'm still sort of doing doing work on Garveyism on the side. Um, I'm really you know the the project that I, I'm working on that I have been working on for for a number of years is I, I want to write a big a big history of Pan Africanism that that starts from the, the the perspective of a a popular Pan Africanism a Pan Africanism of of the people. Um, a lot of a lot of the work that we see on Pan Africanism is told through the lens of great figures in Pan-African history, who, you know, many of which have been, been, been mentioned in our discussion, Edward Wilma Blyden, Henry McNeil Turner, Marcus Garvey, and, and Kwame Nkrumah, and, and on and on. And these, these are, of course, incredibly important, important figures. But I want to I wanna write a, a history that really puts this tradition of Pan-African liberation at the center of, of the story, particularly in the United States, where I think you know, we really need to understand the period from World War One until the destruction of the Black Power movement in the early 1970s as a period of, of real revolutionary possibility in which the, the, the grassroots traditions of Pan-African organizing came into their own, sought to overthrow global white supremacy. Um, we still live with the after effects of that of that struggle. And I really want to try to try to tell that story and, and tell it from all over the world, like with the age of Garvey, talk about the story as, as it as it looks in London, in, in, in Europe, talk about how it looks in places like Detroit, Michigan, how it looks in, in Jamaica with the rise of organizations like the Rastafari, um, you know, religious yeah. groups. Um, that that's that's what I'm that's what I'm working on, Mom. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Ewing, I want to thank you 
uh, for coming on today's episode. This was a privilege, and I think this was a, a powerful and extremely informative uh, podcast. And so I can't wait to, for, to put this up and, and, and for people to actually hear um, this information, because I think there's a people kind of have a general understanding of Garvey and Garveyism, but I think there was a lot shared on this particular episode that can definitely augment the perspective and the understanding that we have of not only Marcus Garvey, but the true um, uh, impact of his movement. Um, so let me go ahead and send this to you, to uh, Dr. Ewing real quick. And once again, make sure you guys are following me on Instagram at Hoy, H-O-Y-T underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And also make sure you follow me on Instagram as well at underscore No Truths Bar Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. And once again, thank you uh, for, for checking out this episode. Take care and peace. You've just listened to episode 66 of No Truths Bard with Dr. Adam Ewing. Thank you for listening to this episode. And make sure you go to the YouTube channel and subscribe to the No Truths Bard podcast. And also make sure you follow me on Instagram on both of my pages, which is underscore No Truths Bard podcast. Also, Hoyt, H-O-Y-T underscore Kuwaku, K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons. That's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And thank you for your continued support. Take care. Much love until next time. Peace.